Today we will be covering 2 Samuel 7, 25-29. And if you're following us in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 260. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. And that is the word of the Lord. We'll be wrapping up chapter 7 this morning, and actually we're going to um, be looking at verses 23 and 24 predominantly. Uh, there's some really important elements in there, but we've in- invested more time into this chapter because it's, it's a really important chapter. This is where we find the Davidic covenant, which we can look at as a, a very, very significant promise and a, a pivot point for the entire Bible, actually, because this is where our Messiah Jesus is promised to David to come from this Davidic line and into eternity. And so moving forward, we'll, we'll start looking at 2 Samuel chapter at a time, and so we're going to quicken up the, the pace a little bit. And chapter 7 felt that this was a spot that we needed to kind of marinate in a little bit longer to understand these scriptures because they're pretty significant. But for the next several chapters, we'll look at entire chapters and we'll be going at a faster clip. So in looking at verses 23 and 24 today, and when we look at God's people, it doesn't seem that there's anything special because of the things that these people of God do, and because of the things that are happening to them, you just look at them and like, what's so special about these people? They get taken advantage of, they're oppressed, they're like taken all over the place, like what's so special? And so when we're looking at this, a question to keep in mind is what do God's people do? Now, unfortunately, there are times when people who aren't God's people look at God's people, and what they sometimes see are just the same nasty people they see anywhere else that there isn't really any different, that no different than anyone else, and so in essence, unholy. Because that's what holiness is. Holiness is being uncommon. And so they just see what is common, what is unholy, and they, they see that people of God are the same, that they cause trouble, that they cause division, that they cause strife, and they see when people who are of God experience those negative things that all of us do, that sometimes we get overcome by those negative things. So how are we any different from anyone else? Well, the word of God sees God's people differently. That we are holy. That we are uncommon. And that we are miraculous. And a good way to see this in God's people is through prayers. You know, and how people pray. And you kind of observe the prayers of God's people. And then you can see this miracle unfold within God's people. And this is what we see in David's prayer in chapter 7. So in chapter 7, God gave David this revelation. He gave David this promise of a dynasty that will come from him, verses 8 through 16. Then in verses 18 through 29, we have David's response to this revelation and this response to God's promise through his prayer. 
And in David's prayer response, we have praise that comes from David in verses 18 through 24. And then we have this petition that comes from verses 25 through 29. So we covered quite a bit of the praise last week. We're going to wrap that up in verses 23 through 24. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. And in verses 23 and 24, we see that David is in, in wonder of God's people. He sees God's people as amazing people. And first of all, he sees that God has redeemed them. Verse 22, And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. So God's people are a redeemed people. And redeemed is mentioned twice in verse 23. God's people are valuable to God. We are of extreme value. Now, in order for a redemption to occur, there has to be two things that happen. Where is the redemption from? And who is the redemption for? Those things have to occur. And so we read of this at the end of verse 23. Who you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. And so redemption is the transfer of ownership for a price, for, for a payment from a previous owner. That's what redemption is. And so this redemption from Egypt is found in Exodus chapters 12 through 14. And God redeemed them for himself, that they were liberated from the bondage in Egypt to belong to a new master. And so redemption involves this liberation from a previous owner, and the possession from the new owner. And so this is a, a glimpse into God's power to crush those chains of bondage and then to bring them in and to belong with God, to commune with people who were once enslaved and now belong to him. You see, when you're looking at Egypt, they would have never had an inheritance from Egypt. They would have always been this slave race. And yet God sets them free from the enslavement and now they belong to him. And now we have this inheritance with God where we are sons and daughters. We are partakers of what he has to offer. And so the Egyptian bondage they were set free from, that happened in the Old Testament. But we see this similar thing happening in the New Testament. Take a look at Titus chapter 2 starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. And so do you see the redeeming taking place? To redeem from and for. That the re redemption involves a liberation, but it doesn't involve an independence. And that's an important distinction to keep in mind. We are liberated, but we're not independent. Some of you may be wondering, Jesus paid the price of redemption through his death on the cross. He redeemed us through transgressions, sins, through his blood. But what happened in the Old Testament? What was the price paid? What was what happening there? Take a look at Isaiah chapter 43, starting in verse 3. 
For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give, a more accurate translation would be, I have given, Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I, a more accurate translation would be to add would, I would give men, obviously it's not just men, humankind, right? In return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. And so this is speaking of the redemption at the Exodus that God gave up all of East Africa, Egypt, Cush. He gave Seba. He gave all of that up for his people. That there was a price paid in redemption. And in fact, God would give up the entire world for his people. Look at the end of verse 4. I would give humankind in return for you. I would give it all for you. I would give up all peoples in exchange for your life. Amen. See, there isn't a price too high for God to pay for his people. That God's people are of infinite value to him. And he proved it to us, didn't he? He proved it to us. Look at John 3.16. You all know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Who out of us would do this with our children to give up for someone you don't even know? I I couldn't do it. I'm not this gracious. I'm not this generous. I mean, if you were to say, like, hey, give up one of your daughters for 100 people, I'm like, sorry. No, not going to do it. Even though I, I want to, be like God and I want to be a saint but if you like to put a gun to my head and like choose I'm like choose my kid sorry that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life see with God it's not just talk he really did it and there's no price too high for God to pay for his people and you look at what Jesus' disciple Peter wrote. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Do you realize... What precious cost God paid for you and I? I mean, you, you look at what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 18. He writes this. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now this is a problem that many Christians have in believing what the world believes. See, the world believes that their body is their own. Therefore, we can do whatever we want with it because it's ours. See, this is not a Christian belief. Your body is not your own. You were bought with a price. Now, for those of 
you who may not be a Christian, let's be real, your body is still not your own. It's in bondage to sin. And it's in bondage to what the world tells you it belongs to. And it says all, all the time that it belongs to you. But you know, there's still a price on you. And whether that is how someone takes advantage of you, or you take advantage of someone else in a sexual way, it's not free. There's still a price. Unfortunately, it's just a cheap one. Because after that fleeing pleasure is gone, then it's just off to the next one. So how valuable can that be? It's not free. But the believer in Christ, you were bought with this hefty price, a precious price. You belong to God now, who redeemed you at this huge cost. And therefore, as Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, such as now, we're in exile essentially, knowing that you were, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. This worldly stuff, these exchanges of goods and, and serve for, for your so-called services or whatever, you're, you're being bought with this cheapness. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, there was a change of ownership by God who redeemed you from sin and for himself. That we belong to God and then we are kept by God. Take a look at verse 24. And you established by yourself for your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. So look at the first key word in verse 24 and it's this word established. Established. It means you are recognized, that there is a recognition of, of where you are, and then there's this acceptance of where you are, that you are established in this place. So recognition and acceptance. And this verb, establish, it can be found five times in this chapter, verses 12, 13, 16, 24, 26. Now this next word, this next key word, is the word forever. Forever can be found four times in, in this chapter, Verse 13, twice in verse 16, and then in verse 24. So established and forever, they actually have nothing to do with David or the people of God. It's God himself who established. It is God himself who is forever. It's not the people. It's not us. We don't establish. We aren't eternal. And so David's dynasty and God's people benefit from God's eternal establishment. And we can't do anything about that. We, we don't determine any of that. We are kept for God and by God. John chapter 6, starting in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. We are kept by God forever. He's the one who established that. John chapter 10, verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That we are redeemed, we are kept, and we're privileged 
Look at the end of verse 24 again. And you established for yourself and your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And this is part of the covenant promise that we have. That God is indeed our God. That the Lord became our God. This is God fulfilling his Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis. This is a promise he made then. Genesis chapter 17, 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And this is God carrying out his promise in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And in Leviticus chapter 26, starting in verse 11, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. But that wasn't all. That's not all of it. See, it doesn't end in the Old Testament. God gives himself in Jesus New Testament, John chapter 14, starting in verse 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. God wants an intimate relationship with us. He wants to commune with us and and fellowship with us. And we are privileged to have a God who draws near to people he so cherishes. Let's move on to uh, verse 25 in 2 Samuel 7. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. This is where the petition portion begins in David's prayer. And so David's petition is essentially that, God, please guarantee the promise you made. Just guarantee it. Do as you have spoken. And then there's that word forever again, which we will also read in verse 26. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. So God made this revelation known to David through the prophet Nathan, and this revelation wasn't meant to just stop at David. It is meant for everlasting, forever. And as this Davidic covenant was promised David that the messianic king would come from his lineage, we look at Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom 
Paul writes long sentences, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Whoa. It is Jesus Christ, the Messiah King, who said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, it doesn't stop in the Old Testament. It doesn't stop with David. It continues on with us, with his church. God's promise fulfilled in Jesus. God's promise made to David here in 2 Samuel 7. And this is the basis of David's courage to pray this prayer to God. You see, the, the, the prayers that we pray, we can be confident in them. We can have courage in them when we know that they are based on God's promises, that you can pray those all you want with immense courage, that in our prayers you can be assured of your prayers whenever they are based on God's promises. Verses 28 and 29. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servants be blessed forever. You see, there's this change in David during this prayer. Because prior to this prayer, he, he was concerned for building a house for God. He, he noticed, that he, God blessed me, I want to build a house for God. And God says, no, not yet. Not yet. And you see this change in David where he's asking God to fulfill his promise rather than saying, God, please, let me build a temple for you. See, a lot of times we have these ideas of what we want to do for God. And he really doesn't need us to do anything for him. I mean, he's God. And it's in that prayer, when we go back to the word and we pray according to his word and according to his promises, that he shows us these things and he starts changing our heart about things. And so for David to fulfill the promise of this kingly dynasty through David, where all of God's children will be blessed, he's bringing him back. It's not about you building a temple like, it's about me and the promises I've made. This Abrahamic covenant I made, this Davidic covenant I'm making to you, that the kingdom of God is built on the promise of God to his people. It's not built from you doing these mighty things like slaying a giant or, or building a temple or whatever you else you want to do. That God uses his church to build the kingdom, to share the gospel, and it's our privilege to share this good news with the world. Amen. A lot of times we're hesitant. There isn't like this evangelistic or evangelism effort in us anymore. But really it's, it's not as challenging or difficult as you may think because it's just in these everyday conversations that you have. You don't have to set forth with, I have these Bible tracts, I'm going to go do this, and I have to say these certain words in this order, and I have to lead them to a prayer, and they have to pray in this way. It doesn't have to be that formulized it doesn't have to be that equation it can be simply a conversation you have with somebody and as you find out that they don't know Jesus you can start praying about that 
And you can start planting those seeds of the gospel in them by just sharing your own testimony about what God has done in your life. And if that's too much for you, you can share what God has done in someone else's life if you don't like talking about yourself. The most important piece is the prayer piece because he has promised. He has promised us that we are pray according to God's promises. He promised us that Jesus came to save. So you can pray for that other person, for them to be saved. And you share that gospel message of salvation with those who, who come in contact with you and you pray for their salvation. This is part of the promise that we're involved in. From Abraham to David to his church, us. That we are to carry out Acts 1.8 to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have given us a very heavy task in that it is the salvation of the world. And yet, this is what you entrust your church with. And so, Lord, we, like David, maybe we get distracted sometimes and we, we want to go in these different ways of what we think will bring glory and honor to you, like a temple or whatever it may be that comes into the church's mind today, that we need to do these sorts of things in order for us to show forth you and your glory. And your, but, God, you don't need that. You... You've already made these promises to us and let us rest in your promises. Let us know that the things that you have called us to, may we be faithful to those things. Lord, there's a world that does not know you and, and yet you've chosen to use us, a very meek group of people that don't have any special accolades or anything, but I, I guess we're in good company that this is who you often choose to use. And so, Lord, will you fill your people with your spirit so that we can do the supernatural, that we can do the miraculous. In Jesus' name, amen. If anyone is in need of a, a communion elements, uh, I don't know what to call this. This, uh, just raise your hand. But within this is a, a precious symbol of what we take regularly, symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ shed for us. And at this time, if anyone is in want or need of prayer, uh, Mike, one of our elders, is in the center pew, and he'd be honored to pray with you. But this, these elements, this bread that we're about to take, Christ's body broken for us, that this is established by God, that this promise made by Jesus saying, take this until he returns, and so we do, in anticipation for the return of Christ. Let's take this together. And the fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us. The taking from transgressions and sins for himself. So that we are princes and princesses of the kingdom of God. We take this in his name.
Lord Jesus, you did promise to come back for us, and we eagerly wait for your return to make things right. May we be good witnesses until that day. In Jesus' name, amen.